You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, uh, why don't you hit us up with a triple AS fact uh, for today, since we're going to be talking more about it. Right. So, triple uh, AS, that's an acronym for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Kind of sounds like a civil rights group for, for scientists. <laughs> it is not, however, though. It is an international nonprofit organization. And they promote basically cooperation and understanding and scientific freedom and exchange of ideas and scientific principles and concepts between scientists. What I found interesting was their actual creation. They've been around for over, what, 150-some years. They were uh, first founded and created in uh, 1848. So it goes back some time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And they were initially the Academy of Natural Sciences, and they their focus was geology, uh, naturalistic stuff, um, um, uh, meteorology, winds and rain and weather and you know uh, how oceanography and things basically natural environment. Which then they formed this group, this broader scientific group. Uh, but their their original first president was William Charles Redfield, and he was this. Uh, meteorologist and uh, was known for uh, his work and research in the working with hurricanes and being able to predict hurricanes and winds and stuff. So I I thought that was that was pretty interesting. And uh, throughout the years, they, even though, again, their early work focused on this, these natural phenomena, uh, they've obviously moved on to other things, including forensic science. They've chosen a forensic <laughs> science topic. As we heard in previous episodes, right. They, I think John talked about they were first looking at fire investigation, arson investigation. I believe they've you know, looked at a few other uh, general aspects, but in, in particular, they wrote this report on fingerprints. And the report came out, uh, refresh my memory here, Eric. Last year, summer summer 2017. 2017, okay. And so the report, which is Forensic Science Assessments, a Quality and Gap Analysis, Latent Fingerprint Examination. Now we had John and Carrie on, where John was one of the authors, John Black, as well as William Thompson, Neil Jane, and Jay Cadane, although he's... An author, Joseph Cadane. I think Jay is his middle name, but he goes by Jay Cadane. Right. And uh, Carrie Hall was one of the uh, reviewers of the report. Well, I, so I want to jump oh, in yeah. real quick. Yeah. Just going back Go to your little factoid about uh, about the history, I'll throw in another little one. And and you can all everyone imagine me pushing up my glasses onto my onto my, higher up onto my nose and throwing a. Are you, you going to say actually? Um, actually. Yeah, all uh, right. Here we go. You, you called the the AAAS uh, an acronym, uh, and it's actually an abbreviation. Um, because let me get real close to the microphone here. Because an acronym is like NATO; it's something you pronounce. But if you just say the letters, then it's just just an abbreviation. So, um, actually, it, AAS is is an abbreviation. Thank you for speaking, finally smiling. Speaking now. of ASS, 
Oh, wait, wait. I mean, AA. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. yes. Oh, and then going, uh, uh, going to the cover. <laughs> of... <laughs> well, actually, actually, I learned something. I, I, I guess I didn't know that. Okay, well. I, I, well, at least it's what I heard. It's what the internet told me, so I, I don't know. <laughs> Nice. Going on to the cover, you, 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 you scroll up to the cover of the uh, the paper. Um, mm-hmm. You notice, you know, something, something a little kind of, kind of twitchy uh, about the cover. I, I see it now. <laughs> yes, the fingerprint is upside down. God damn it! The fingerprint <laughs> upside down. Well, that, that is pretty fascinating. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Notice that they don't have the molecular structures upside down that are on the, the cover. <laughs> They're letters. You got that right. You can't, I mean, it would be, yes, it would be difficult to put the C's. I mean, the H's can go upside down, I guess. That wouldn't really matter, but the C's would look weird. Um, oh, those are sugar molecules. And then the, right. the blood stain drips down, so I guess that's... Yeah. That, yeah. And the microscope's the not upside down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's well, get into this. Our plan today is to cover the six questions that they asked or attempt, asked and attempted to answer using the research. And the whole point of this was to go into the literature and see what the literature said. And I, again, I always love that approach. I know Sweetfast did this for some of our documents towards the end where it wasn't just what do we think, it's what does right. the literature say? What does the literature allow us to say? And I, again, thinking of this as a scientific approach well that makes sense and that you're talking about the articulation document from swigfast which i, right. I love the format of that document so um yes so oh let's uh, let's jump in the first uh, first question here is there right. an adequate scientific foundation for understanding the degree of variability of fingerprints a among unrelated individuals and b among relatives okay good good place to start um and they give conclusions here, um, basically saying that, yes, uh, patterns vary greatly among individuals, um, that uh, even among related uh, monozygotic twins, they vary. You can tell people apart. However, one of their conclusions here is that the scientific literature, in their opinion, doesn't provide an adequate basis for assessing the rarity of any particular feature or set of features. Uh, it might be found in a fingerprint. I would argue that actually you you can't really measure the that for a single feature that it it just by definition has to be for a set of features. Uh, would you agree on that, Glenn? Yeah, I I mean I I'm taking your point. I mean one can do that. I just don't think it would be useful information. I mean that's how the early statistical models started by attempting to measure individual characteristics. But as, as even this recognizes, there's, it's pretty clear that they're not going to be statistically independent. Therefore, they must be considered as a group because one feature influences the other. So it would make sense, as we knew this from more advanced statistical models, that it's the relationships, of course, that are significant. And, right, right. The, the, right. The unit relationships counting the number of intervening ridges between all these points um, that, uh, that we see. Yeah. Um, and they say that even though examiners may be able to exclude most people, uh, there's no scientific basis for estimating the number of people who could still not be excluded. Um, and my question from that is, well, if we can demonstrate that we're highly accurate when we find these similarities and decide to identify, 
then is it necess- why is it necessary to establish a criteria to exclude all but one? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I see it the same way. I mean, those I see so distinctly different. One is how accurate are with are you with these conclusions, but the other is the frequency. Uh, did you get the right person? Did you make an accurate identification? Right. But this other one, the estimation of frequency of characteristics, I, I see these as, as quite different. I'm, I'm kind of with them here. Okay, well, and... I guess the, what I'm getting then getting at is, in the meantime, before we get something that accurately can do this, uh, c- can create this criteria um, to to reliably, accurately do so and say that it, it's you know you would need this many other people before you would expect to see this du- duplicated. Can the accuracy that we've demonstrated so far stand in? Uh, while this other thing is developed, even if it maybe maybe it may heck may might not be ever be able to be developed, it, we it, we hope that it is, and people are working towards it, but it may not be an achievable thing. So, doesn't this can this sure. accuracy stand in for now? All right, so let's call that the PCAST approach and suggestion is that in the absence of statistical models, you're a black box, and and then you can default to error rates. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. I, that I'm fine with. Um, I, although I think an interesting question for me is the converse here. Suppose we do develop a model that allows us to estimate frequencies down to potentially a single person, much like DNA does. Does that then mean that we can identify? Can we actually then use identification? <laughs> I, I, that's... Uh, again, I, I really do think these are two separate terms, and this is why, like the Bayesian framework, they do separate these things very much from a posterior conclusion versus a, a likelihood ratio. But now I think we're we're, we're digging in the weeds too much. Uh, overall, they say yes, you can discriminate fingerprints; they're highly variable. Notice they don't say unique. They don't actually even they don't even ask the question about uniqueness. Right. Uh, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that they don't even delve into that, and that they just get right to are these variable characteristics that are useful. And the recommendations following from these conclusions that they reached that resources should be devoted to research these ways to ep- estimate the weight of evidence, and resources should be devoted to. Uh, further testing examiners under lab conditions, which we're going to yeah. talk about more later on. Which, yeah. as recommendations, sure, well, you know, more research money coming into oh. our field. Um, if I mean, if they can make it happen, more power to them. So, uh, you know, for these recommendations, obviously, no issues with that. Yeah. All right. So, the second question: Is there an adequate scientific foundation for understanding the degree of variability among prints made by the same finger? So how different can fingerprints look when coming from the same finger making multiple impressions? And then a few caveats such as on different surfaces and over time or as a person ages or injury, blah, 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 blah. Variability within the source. And again, uh, the research is there and they say that, you know, to some degree that this has been studied, but examiners may misjudge sometimes whether or not apparent differences are due to true discrepancies, true differences right. uh, versus uh, a distortion, that there aren't really good criteria or standards for assignment of dissimilarities and determining if it's 
a true difference or a distortion artifact. And that's, I think that's, that's pretty fair. Yeah. But one of their conclusions here, I, I, I kind of disagree a little bit with, it, it, let me read this sentence here real quick. It says, uh, but there is also evidence that latent print examiners sometimes misjudge the degree of intrafinger variability that may occur creating a risk of false exclusions. It's unclear whether this problem occurs because examiners fail to appreciate the implications of existing research or because existing research is incomplete. I would say for those two options that neither is the case, that examiners aren't coming to erroneous exclusions because they're failing to appreciate the implications of existing research. And I also don't think that additional research is going to help that. Uh, I mean, there's there's training that they can receive to, you know, not miss seeing the similarities. But more research is you know isn't going to cure examiners or understanding the research isn't going to cure them of making erroneous exclusions. We you know we can tr- always obviously always try to get better, but uh, and research should continue. But you know these these errors are just going to happen. It's like it's like later on when they talk about bias. Understanding that bias is there doesn't cure uh, the bias. It doesn't prevent the bias from happening. Understanding what could lead to erroneous exclusions and misinterpretation of um, intrafinger variability isn't going to cure the situation uh, completely. Um, so I think that that final sentence of of seeing like is it this or that really doesn't kind of understand what's going on there hmm all right i'm not trying to be mr contrary tonight but <laughs> uh i i didn't have a problem with that in fact i thought you were saying it there and i, I wasn't sure where you're, you were going because i guess i do think that uh, through research or training either way examiners being shown more examples of artifacts and, and realizing oh Okay, you know, these are artifacts and and by having a better understanding of the kinds of artifacts and missing ridges or extra ridges or these sorts of things is actually useful in that I don't think right now, given the number of erroneous exclusions, that we have a good body of research on how often erroneous exclusions are happening in casework and and the causes of those erroneous exclusions. I think we're just starting to see that. And I know you're collecting data on that. And, you know, you get to see that live in your classes. I see it live in my classes. So I'm not, I, I, I guess I, I would want to see more research. Oh, absolutely. And examiners may benefit from that, and, and seeing the, the causes. And, um, and I, I, I was... That's kind of my summary. Was I was trying to say at the end is yes, that would that'll be great and that will help. So I guess I only had a slight issue with this is and it's that while yes, some of the issue is is not understanding uh, existing you know, research or, or things that are out there. Some of it's needing more research, but I think there's also a third component of this is the thing we're going to always have a problem with. Um, again, like bias. You can go through as much training on bias as you can. You can study it and internalize that, but it's still going to affect you. And I, I really think that's that again. That kind of even links back in because bias towards an exclusion is really the issue with bias uh, for our field, and that's just going to be a thing that's there. Um, so I guess I would just ex- not not fault them for this, but just expand it out 
to you know either failing to appreciate the implications of current research, needing more research, or you know to to whatever extent that this is just going to you know continue to be a, a standard baseline of errors uh, uh, that continue to exist for that decision. Okay. Well, I should probably warn you. We have, we haven't talked about this. I actually agreed with most of the things in this report. Me too. Um, oh, yeah, me too. I, 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 which, I mean, this is really nitpicking because I kind of want something uh, to talk about. I see. <laughs> so, well, that's okay. We, we can get to that later. Yeah. And, we, and and I'm sure that'll come up when we get towards the end because I mean I thought all of this is fine and harmless and in fact really good research and a good anthology. Again, for listeners, a good anthology of research and articles and papers and good summaries of all the reports. This is the report I'm saying now, going on record. This is the report I like the most. Uh, I I think it's the fairest and is a good summary of of really important research, all in one nice spot that supports and tries to answer these questions. Um, So... I, I guess what I would say to the authors here for these like conclusions and recommendations is um, I, I agree, needing more research here. Um, I would uh, seek to clarify a little nugget uh, of this part here. But um, question three. Question three. Uh, is there an adequate scientific foundation for understanding the accuracy of APHIS? For me, I didn't really see any problems in this section. Um, okay. It, it yeah, really me, kind yeah. of overviews what APHIS does, you know, makes recommendations for, uh, you know, continuing on with uh, interoperability and, and other things. Again, if, to get maybe a little nitpicky, the recommendations make it sound like these things need to happen, even though they've been ongoing for years. Um, yeah. Like when they talk about spurring competition between vendors or when they talk about quality metrics, uh, or even interoperability, all those things have been going on for years, if not decades. Uh, and, you know, FBI has had these competitions, uh, or the feds at some level has had them. Quality metrics have been a part of APHIS forever, as far as I know, going back. Uh, and interoperability has improved, especially when you go up, when you, when you want to search from local up towards your state or your or the feds. That's gotten easier over the years. Going across state to state is still kind of difficult in some aspects. But anyway, just the way they've worded it, it sounds like these recommendations to start doing this. But there's always already been great strides in these areas. Yeah, yeah and for the listener who for, you know, may not be familiar with the term interoperability, it was actually one of the recommendations coming out of the NAS report that a, a working group got together, and this is the ability of APHIS's, APHIS systems to be able to speak and talk and communicate to one another across state lines, like you said, from regional to national and so on, because they're different vendors, they have different software, they're not necessarily compatible. This recommendation says we need to make these things more compatible in the same way that, for example, CODIS, the DNA databases. Right. And, right. and just as a quick uh, aside, uh, APHIS... An acronym. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number four. Is there an adequate scientific foundation for understanding the potential for contextual bias and latent print analysis? Yes, there is. There are there is research that shows that examiners can be biased, and I, and I do like, and I I look very specifically for this. I, I thought this was really nice. 
that uh, they did make the distinction between, if you will, ambiguous cases, ambiguous comparisons versus easy ones. And so I thought I thought that was good that they did that, and that, that actually gave me some hope. In fact, I'll, I'll read it here. In clear-cut cases, contextual bias is unlikely to change examiners' opinions, but may have stronger effects in ambiguous cases where the prints are more difficult to evaluate. Thank you for for that ca- that caveat, that nuanced conclusion. That kind of nuance is not what I'm seeing in, in the other reports. Right. That tells me they read the articles, <laughs> they understood the articles, and they recognized the nuances in the research. Thank you. I, I would I would have liked to see them go a little bit further, uh, as opposed to just saying that they're vulnerable, like all human beings, to contextual bias. I think that the, the the research is out there to show that in some instances, latent print examiners are surprisingly resilient to certain types of bias. And I've always thought that that is an interesting question to pursue. Um, not, oh, we're biased just like everybody else, but in the instances where we resist bias, specifically, you know, uh, your paper showing, you know, resistance to bias towards an identification. Mm, I see what you're saying. Why is that? Why are we so, why are we different? And why do, why are we able to resist that kind of bias? I find that to be an interesting question. When we say resist, though, we should, we should and let's be specific. What we mean is that we're less likely to be biased enough to make an erroneous identification, true, but more likely to be biased enough to make an erroneous exclusion. Because there's, you're, you're bringing up some good points that we don't know the magnitude of directionality. We don't know if if the if one push is larger in another direction. We don't know if it's uh, a greater push work could, ca- could cross a decision threshold. I mean, I, I agree with you that be some more interesting research there to parse out those differences. And is it because of utility function, because of the penalty of uh, erroneous yeah, ID? Partially. I, but I think even just thinking culture. about... Think, well, culture, I think, is a big part of it, exactly. Um, but I also think it's just the way that, that we operate, wh- where identifications are inherently interesting and exclusions are inherently not. Um, <laughs> like imagine going through and spending an entire day going through a hundred comparisons or a as many as you can get through, and every single one of them is an identification. You are engaged and interested the entire time. Well, yeah. if every single okay. one of them is an exclusion, you eventually take that. You know, you sit way back, way in the front of your chair, and you lean way yeah. back, and you're just kind of glazed over. Um, so. Uh, to some extent, that biasability of, oh, it's going to be another exclusion really takes hold and can bias you into making an erroneous exclusion. Yeah, you're right. Almost a fatigue of attention. Exactly. And it's, uh, no, it's, that's a good point. I mean, and that could be a, a huge factor in that. So I, I take your point that I, I actually think that we we only have the tip of the iceberg. Yes. There could be a lot more research in that area. Yeah, and, okay. and I find it interesting to ask that that question. Um, the what yeah. the other thing I thought they they should have gone more into is while they do say that you know the it varies with the cases like difficult cases versus mm-hmm. you know, easy ones, um, they they kind of make the broad statement of using contextual management procedures um, instead of 
I think what we've talked about before is implementing these kind of procedures for a blind or second or extra verifier and not just for the original examiner and blinding them through their whole process. Because when you do that, uh, it's way less efficient um, and you also risk raising the error rate uh, because having some of these extra bits of information may result in an examiner not making an error when they would uh, if they actually didn't have all that information. Yeah, I, I, I take your point there and I, I agree that, and, and I'll say that I thought that the, the report was fair in assessing the contextual bias research and that recommendation. They did not at all consider the efficiency aspect. Right, not that they right. had to, but I take your point that before implementing this on a widespread, we really might want to consider the best way to implement these kinds of procedures and the efficiency standpoint, but also just from a verification quality control standpoint, should it be one verifier? Should it be two verifiers? When should we, and when there are multiple IDs, do we need to verify all of them? And we don't yet have any comprehensive research on the best quality control mechanism for verification yet. No one has done that research yet. What is the most efficient and best and most accurate quality control approach to verification. The, uh, the last big issue I had with the recommendation here is uh, in their uh -huh. examples of what what kind of case management sequential stuff to use, linear ACEV. Uh, <laughs> linear ACEV is bullshit and will I always be... I use linear ACEV? <laughs> no, you don't. I, no, you don't. I mean, yes, I do. Well, no, I, I, but they don't say a strict linear ACB approach, and they would allow for some backwards if documented. But I do a mostly linear ACB approach using sequential unmasking. <laughs> True, but, uh, um, and yes, you have to start with analysis and then you move on to comparison. Uh, but uh, it, for, for anything but the simplest comparisons, uh, you have to go back and consider different possibilities and that's that's not linear um you, you may no, I, 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 I take your point i mean they're they don't get into the specifics of how linear and how strict it needs to be true i remain un um changing in my um in my belief that all comparisons um are in latent print comparisons are non-linear um to to just a greater or lesser degree um, okay. All right. So, well, let, let me let me pose a different question. Are you opposed to examiners? And I see these in class all the time. Right. That when I hand out the exercises of the late and the known, and they just jump right into the comparison. They oh no no they no don't do any analysis. It's they are doing we malo. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> no, you have you have to look at your latent first without looking at your exemplar. Mark okay. it up all, right. all to hell and. Uh, with with as many reds as you can squeeze onto the paper, uh, and then put the exemplar side by side, and then you kind of you get everything to match up, and you know um, move things around so that everything um, matches, and move things around to see well what if it works this way, and then you rotate your latent, and you, you know that that's the back and forth part. Right. But I think that's what they're opposed to is not having any real structure, not doing a, an analysis first. I think that's their true objection are, is the lack of analysis. And unfortunately, I know examiners that were never trained to do it that way and still don't bother with it. I, I, I know what you mean. Um, however, 
with ace v in a circular fashion you still have to start at a and then go to c and then things can start you know spinning and um and being circular but it, it is very important to start with a uh, okay. and make sure that's all, all done right. first well and then we don't have to split hairs right like that. okay all right um is there an adequate scientific foundation this is question five now uh, for understanding the accuracy of human fingerprint examiners and how their accuracy is affected by a level of training and experience b individual differences in perceptual ability c analytical procedures and standards of practice d quality control and quality assurance procedures and e the quality of prints if not what kinds of research are needed to improve understanding of these issues <laughs> I, I think their first conclusion actually resonates strongly with me. Studies of the accuracy of latent print examiners leave no doubt, leave no doubt, let me stress that, leave no doubt <laughs> that trained fingerprint examiners have expertise that makes them better at the task of fingerprint comparison than non-experts. And, you know, I know you've brought this up many times about expert opinion. Here, Here it is here. There is true expertise, and I think yep. that should be recognized, which then allows the expert to opine, as you have brought up before. Uh, absolutely. And that, that first conclusion uh, is strong. I think it's a little undercut following that up by saying that it's not clear, not clear, whether um, the error rates observed reflect error rates that occur in actual practice of latent print analysis. I'm okay with that. Just with the not clear? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I, I guess my first impression was, you know, maybe say something, at least it suggests that we can be, that, that, that you know, these cases reveal that we're, you know, accurate. But I guess just being not clear doesn't not go, clear. Um, doesn't right. doesn't say that it, it can't be considered at all or it's not considered at all. So, yeah. Okay. This, this to me, it, all right, and again, this is another call to the profession. Will someone just please freaking do this study and shut them up? <laughs> well, just, can we just please do this study and just shut everyone the F up? We I, know I just, we could do it. I mean, like, I, we, right. we'd, we'd be like, whatever lab does it is going to, I mean, the lab, the results aren't going to be, Oh wow. We only got half of them. Right. You know, it's going to be, um, yep. uh, you know, 99 plus percent or 100 percent accuracy. I, I will help you set these up. I have plenty of trials, plenty of images that we can use, plenty of cases and comparisons. I will I will come and set these up for you. The, Please just do get, it. <laughs> let's just do it. The, Please, labs out there, let me know. We can do this and just shut them up. The, the difficulty is doing it so that the examiner doesn't catch on. Um, right. Because I and, guarantee you yes. that if you have, um, you know, a box full of of clear cards with white powder, uh, the examiners at my yeah. agency are going to know something's uh -huh. up when they get that yeah. case slipped into them uh, in actual casework. Yes. Now, uh, I've, I have ways that we could do this. And frankly, the, the, the agency that will be easiest to do this, even though they mentioned it, you know, the agency that does contextual blinding would be easiest to conduct these. Uh, the agency that's easiest to do these are digital agencies. Yeah. Agencies that just work digital cases, digital comparisons, don't do any processing. Don't do the processing, right. And just receive images. Those are the agencies that will be easiest to slip this in. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Uh, 
the other the other agency that would be a good mark for this would be those that do blind verification True. where they have some digital folder and they get some digital folder of blinds to do and just even if they knew hey some percentage of these are going to be test cases you won't know which ones yeah, yeah, you know, you could just slip. That'd be even easier know. because uh, you know, if you're talking about a regular agency that's getting in digital stuff, then yeah. you would have to work with the ten print unit to have samples like import imported into APHIS, or the the examiners would kind of start to learn that any case with provided exemplars is going to be most likely the one that they're actually having the test oh, done I see on. Your point. Now I see your um, point. Interesting. Because yeah, most those, of those, they don't provide the exemplars. But anyway, there's yeah. there's ways around it. It's just a difficult problem. It is. I, I've tried to do this kind of research in my lab years ago, and it took me six months, and I think we got four cases through our process. It's very, very difficult to trick examiners <laughs> in, as, in into this. Like we said last episode, as it right. should be. Right. Yeah, Exactly. All right, so I thought overall they did a they did a really good review, a deep dive on and a summary of all the different research papers, and they weren't really they weren't like PCAST where you know PCAST says we're going to review all these, but really only two matter. They didn't really do that. They actually no. accepted error rates, and you know they were critical of certain limitations of some papers where appropriate. I thought they were actually very fair. Uh, I, I didn't think that they. They just basically said, "Here's the paper. Here's the results. Here's some limitations. Next paper. Here's some. Here are the here's the the study. Here's the results. Here's the limitations. Next paper." And I, I, I thought they did a, a very good deep dive, going back pretty far. Yeah, I, this this whole section uh, again, besides that one little clarification, I guess, or one little quibble, uh, I, I thought was was great, and I really actually love this section. I hope that they are able to. Yeah you know influence somebody to give us give somebody some agency or group the money to do this kind of research um because like 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 you said it would shut them up well i guess actually do you really think it would no (laughs) it will move them on to a new argument (laughs) or maybe a different discipline maybe they'll just move on to a different discipline which would be great but it will just get rid of the stupid thing I'm sick of hearing over and over. We really don't know how good these error rates are when you come to... Yeah, yeah, all right, fine. Just do the study, and then let's move on. I, I'm just thinking of people like the Habers that are just not going to accept it no matter how well the study is done. Yep. And there's nothing fine. you can do about that. Right. Uh, and so then to the last question, and this is probably where I did have a little little more issue with the report, but actually not that much. I mean, I again, I, I really had very little problems with this report, but all right. Question six. In light of the existing scientific literature, what kind of statements might fingerprint examiners reasonably make in reports and testimony in order to appropriately convey both the strength and uncertainty associated with fingerprint evidence? What should we be saying in court? How should we define these terms identification? How should we describe this to jurors? Yeah, and this is the I think this is probably the part that we spent most time with when we were talking to John and Carrie, right? Is in this right. section because this is where a lot of their disagreements came from as well. Exactly. Yeah, and and not not surprising. No, no. Um so the first thing I would say is is in their first conclusion here, they says in their view that the proposed uh, reporting language from uh, SWIGFAST and the DOJ uh, published gu- guidelines on how to direct print examiners to, to testify, 
uh, allows examiners to make claims that cannot be justified scientifically. This is similar to actually to what uh, to what Henry Swafford has been saying uh, and why they went uh, to their you know alternative wording. And I, I keep coming back to these statements just start getting they're just being made. You know, oh, you you can't testify to identification because there's nothing you you don't have support to say identification. Bullshit, I do. Sure, sure I can. There's nothing scientifically invalid about saying identification uh, after viewing the, the information that corresponds between two impressions. There just isn't. There's nothing in science that requires uh, a, a validated statistical model uh, to to reach an LR threshold. It, it's just, that's not what science means. Hmm. Well... I probably take a little different view on this <laughs> then. Uh, my view is that for me, an identification means I wouldn't reasonably expect to see this configuration of characteristics repeated to this degree of correspondence in another person. And in that's what it means to, to me too. All right. Well, in order to achieve that, I have to have some good sense of how rare characteristics are. And I'm doing that assessment using... Unfortunately, my subjective probabilities and training, experience, knowledge, statistical models, and I have found myself in instances where I want to call an identification, but if I had the data or a model or some way to estimate these characteristics, I would be more informed in making that decision. I found myself just on the fence going, look, if I ran this through a model and it turns out that these characteristics are one in a billion, then I am going to ID. But if they come back from the model and it's one in a million, then I, I'm going to stay at inconclusive here. And that's the thing that I wish I had something to help inform me. Otherwise, I'm taking an educated and informed yes, opinion about that's the That's not rarity, what they're talking about here. I need the data. What they're talking about is when you find 30 points in common, that you can't, you have no scientific basis for saying identification with meaning what you mean identification to mean. Yeah, you have no basis for saying identification in the thirty-point case. That's what they're saying here. Well, okay, so you're—I see what you're—you're you're saying that they are not—they're not nuanced enough. They're not saying in some instances it may be justified to do this, and in other instances it may not be. The problem is we don't know where that transition is. Is that what you're right. kind of saying? Is that right? Okay. All right, well, they, you're right, then. They don't make that nuanced argument. They just broadly say, without a model, you can't make those kinds of statements. And I think that's total bullshit. <laughs> sure okay. I can. Well. There's nothing There's nothing in science that says I can't do that. Uh, there's nothing in science that says I'm invalid for doing so. Uh, unless I missed, you know, that chapter in, uh, back in, in, you know, Biochem 420 or something. But sure I can. That's a... That's, uh, that's a, that's, a, that's a Japanese throwing star, right? Sure can. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I, I see your nuance here, um, and I see their point. It's Until we have the model, we're just going to keep chasing your tail on this one. Well, that's... I, I since, since I know that when you write reports, you write the word identification, I'm going to say that you're on my side on this one. I, I, I am, <laughs> that we can say identification, but I take their point is that what's missing is this the data that support this conclusion the data being a quantitative measurement which currently we have a subjective qualitative measurement of it which is still scientific 
Like, it doesn't become more scientific once you switch over to being a subjective model base versus the current subjective uh, based. Yeah. That's not more scientific. It's just different. And yeah, yeah, having, having both would be better than having just one or the other, but it doesn't become more scientific when you do both. Yeah. Well, okay. I like the. I mean, I get your point on the more scientific. That's not. It's not a uh, an uh, international standard unit of measurement. Scientific scientificity. Scientificosity. Okay. SI well, the main point being is that they don't think we should be seeing identification. They right. would rather say things like the source cannot be excluded. And as we've discussed on other episodes. That I think is BS. I mean, that, at that point, it's so imprecise right. that you've only you've only removed exclusion from the table, but now leave a range of other likelihood ratios and probabilities available, all the way from almost an exclusion to a thousand minutia in agreement. Uh, and I think we can be much more precise than that. And we talked about it before. They mentioned the E, or Carrie mentioned it last episode, the ENFSI, European Network of Forensic Science Institutes, uh, requiring examiners to estimate likelihood ratios, which uh, yeah. I, they don't, but even if they did, no one's doing it. So that whole bullet point has lots of issues. So uh, here, and we, we kind of covered it in the last two episodes, so we're not going to really go into it a whole lot here, but they mentioned the, the wording that they suggest. And, um, you know, we kind of already covered some of the issues that are inherent in the wording that they propose. Uh, I want to skip down to the last uh, conclusion that they make here. Uh, They say members of the public are likely to hold misconceptions about fingerprints, which from the movies we've been looking at over the past uh, few weeks, (laughs) definitely true. There's definitely misconceptions, especially in Hollywood, about fingerprints. Um, So uh, latent print examiners should... um, uh, include special caveats or limitations to the discipline, um, and latent print examiners should acknowledge one that the conclusion being reported are opinions rather than facts. Um, two that it's not possible for a latent print examiner to determine that two friction ridge impressions originated from the same source to the exclusion of all others, and three that errors have occurred in studies of the accuracy of latent print examinations. And those three, I got no problem with any of that. Um, yeah, I agree. If, is as long as I'm asked about them. Yeah, if if yeah, if anyone in court asks about those kinds of things, um, if somehow that comes up in the the questions, yeah, I'll I'll talk about that as as long as you want me to. If I think that the defense is going to go down that road, I'd probably even suggest the prosecutor to bring these things up on um, direct, and so they don't just come up on cross. Um, uh, but these are things that no latent print examiner should have any issue discussing. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't have any, any particular issues with that. Uh, one thing, though, I, I, that stood out to me in one of the other uh, conclusions was uh, there are a number of attempts at mathematical models right now and so forth. The research is promising, deserves support, although the models are not yet ready for use in the courtroom. Uh, well, go tell the Dutch because they are using a model in the courtroom. So I thought this was interesting that maybe they were looking at it from the American perspective, but then they had this, as you pointed out, this European perspective. So were they just unaware that the Dutch are using them in the courtroom now that uh, the national or NFI 
Netherlands Forensic Institute in Holland is actually using a model and they are going to court on it. So, sorry, report. Uh, tell, the, tell, the, tell that to the Dutch. Okay. And, now, and now we've got the Army Crime Lab yeah. using the FR stat model. In, in Arizona, damn it. <laughs> That's where the, the, first, the first instance of it uh, happened to be, was, uh, was down in southern Arizona. Um, well, h- how ironic for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, with the Dutch, real quick though, um, is that is their model published or like the, the you know any kind of research about that uh, out there? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, they've been, yeah, yeah. Um, what's his name? Um, Aaron De Jong. Uh, that's D E J O N G H. Okay. Uh, he he and DDA Muley and some others have worked on this model for years. Uh, Anko uh, Lucan Lucan is uh, one of the the Dutch examiners at NFI using the model. Uh, we should try to get them on the podcast. Yeah, they'd be a good get. I'm talking about their experience in the courtroom with the model. Yeah, um, if if it's available, even I'd like to play with it. I've just started playing with um, the FR staff from I, I don't the think army. It is. No. It, I, I think it's attached to their data. They they use essentially an APHIS to inform them. So, right. Uh, we we need to get them on, right. and we can okay. we can hear hear about the model. But they have published papers on this approach for some time. No, oh, that's great. It, it's a likelihood ratio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's another one to add to the list. We got a long list here, Glenn. Um, we, <laughs> we took too much time off, um, and now. And now uh, I, I, I gotta keep writing these things down because I keep running, I keep forgetting about all the the guests that we've uh, said that we talked to or we're planning on talking to or different topics. But this is one we can definitely cross off the list now because people have been asking for this for like over a year now. So uh, again, yeah. thank you for all the listeners that encouraged <laughs> How timely us. Timely are we <laughs> to finally take care of this? Uh, and hopefully, no one was waiting and had to go through a. Uh, a Daubert hearing or court testimony where this was used and you know we're hoping that we'd talk about it uh, before they actually got on the stand but um, if that's the case let us know we'd like to hear about um, you know the details of of how this got used uh, in your case oh speaking of letting us know yeah uh, let's let's remind our listeners hey uh, we're on Twitter now and we need as many followers as possible we really want to get that going uh, please follow us at Double Loop Pod. That's Double Loop Pod, at Double Loop Pod on Twitter. And uh, we're getting lots and lots of info out that way. Please uh, subscribe, follow us, and uh, share our tweets. Yep, a couple things. Wine. Uh, you like it, we like it. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like wine? Uh, I actually got a, a text earlier today from, from Carrie, kind of double-checking about the uh, the California Wine Club. Because uh, her mom was going to sign up for it. So, cawineclub.com is where you go. You can either choose to have wine delivered to you monthly, uh, or you can just order a bottle or a case or whatever you're looking for of an, a specific kind of wine. Uh, in either case, uh, just use the promo code Double Loop to get 15% off, and that'll help support uh, us of what we're doing here. Also, book readers, don't stop reading those books, start listening to the books. Uh, go on to audible.com uh, and use the promo code audibletrial.com slash double loop to get a free month service with audible that comes with a free audiobook. Uh, next thing, Patreon. We're, we're planning some more stuff for Patreon. So 
right now we just want people to go and just because they like the show and they want to give us money uh, to go on to patreon.com and search for double loop podcast and sign up to become a patron of the arts of the fingerprint arts but to become a patreon of our show uh but we are planning ahead and we're going to start uh really packing in a lot of features into the patreon uh, members Mm-hmm. So, if you have any ideas of of what kind of material uh, you would like to get, like for uh, different levels, is usually how it works. Whether so a dollar a month, or two dollars a month, or five dollars a month, what kind of um, information or, or resources would you like to have access to from uh, myself and Dr. Glenn Langenberg? Um, if you have any ideas of of what you'd like to see, please let us know, and we'll start as we start to kind of putting stuff in at patreon we'll announce uh what patrons uh will get for whatever level they sign up for and again like i said if you have any ideas of what you would like to see on that site available to you um for becoming a sponsor of the show uh, let us know and we'll make sure to include it yeah imagine daubert preparation packs reviews of articles complex case comparisons just think of all the materials that we could put there as training tools and other other things uh, that uh, would be useful to the latent print examiner and who knows maybe even branch out to some of the other disciplines yeah we we've got we we got we got ideas we got some we got some ideas so the show is definitely growing and, and this is just kind of the the next step in all of that um we're 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 looking to find ways for the show to grow as well, uh, and this mm-hmm. is this is what um, what that's starting to look like. We got the conference coming up. Uh, by the time this airs, both of us should be at the conference. Uh, so, if you're listening at the conference, what are you doing? Go out and go to the conference. Um, if you're not at the conference this week, uh, which conference are we talking? About? We're, we're talking about the IAI conference, the big conference. It's the conference with a capital T, I guess, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. I actually had to double check because I couldn't remember if I'd ever been to San Antonio before, the Alamo. Uh, my dad says that we did because we used to live in Texas, that we drove all the way down at least once to see the Alamo. Um, but I don't remember. But um, I'm looking forward to... You don't remember it? <laughs> 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 uh, wow! I do, what I do, I do remember American. Maine though. So <laughs> <laughs> you didn't remember the L. Uh, yeah, kind of walked right into that one. I man. did, uh, but we're. I'm looking forward to the Riverwalk and the Alamo and uh, the Convention Center and a whole week of not enough sleep uh, and too much wine. So <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like the IAI. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, and I wasn't there last year, so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing a lot of people and saying hi and enjoying uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah, we'll be recording live there, too. Uh, In the vendors hall, we're going to be doing some cross-promotional stuff. Uh, We're going to be dealing with some vendors as well. We've got a lot of episodes planned, just even at the II to record. Absolutely. We may have to go to multiple episodes a week. Yeah. It's a kiss to keep up and get some of these out because as we're as we're recording this now, we have at least two other episodes we've already recorded in the can that I haven't even gotten to editing yet because of just how schedules have worked out. Um, so we've got backed up episodes ready to come out. Um, we're constipated with episodes. Yeah, that's exactly true. 
Uh, I'm gonna. I want to mention one last thing real quick before we close out. That that uh, I'm gonna be uh, demonstrating um, some new stuff I've been working on for Photoshop um, that it will enhance latent print examiners' uh, efficiency to mark up uh, latents with gyro and uh, to do comparisons um, and also new abilities to take notes uh, in Photoshop. Uh, all kind of natively built in. So if you're going to be at the conference, not that you'll be listening to this at the time, but I'll be demonstrating this at the conference. So make sure to find me uh, and and look for that. But mainly for people listening to this episode that may not be at the conference, you can head over to my uh, YouTube channel. Just look on YouTube, just type in Ray Forensics, uh, or even go to my webpage, rayforensics.com, and you'll be able to find the videos that kind of demonstrate how that all works. Um, and if you're interested in learning more, please contact me about that. Because I, I really think, especially for agencies that are doing on-screen comparisons using Photoshop, that this could be a big help for those agencies. Yeah, and I just like to remind listeners, uh, especially our Canadian listeners, our neighbors to the north, still looking for people to sign up for advanced ACV applications through Ron Smith and Associates. We're just taking a look at some numbers right now. So we have plenty of seats still in that class. That is November 12th through the 16th, I believe, of this year in Calgary, Alberta, Calgary. And uh, I'd love to have you show up for that if you're a Canadian examiner and you've never taken one of my classes before. This is a nice overview of the ASP process. We get into advanced topics and deconstruct the ASP process and have plenty of exercises and lectures and go over various research. And it's a really, it's an intense class, but it's also, I think, uh, uh, chock full of, of good information that, and lessons and uh, exercises that hit home uh, the concepts and the material. So I would really encourage you to go to ronsmithandassociates.com if you're interested in taking that class up in Canada in November, November 12th to the 16th. Awesome. All right. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, the opinions we express are our own and don't belong to anybody else. Contact us, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, uh, or you know, just want to interact with us through email, if you're or Twitter. if you're young and want to get on the Twitter instead, at Double Loop Pod uh, is a great way to do that. And, Please, and <laughs> even you know what you, you should do just just uh, borrow just, someone's phone. Just sign up. Yeah, borrow, borrow someone's phone that, that has the Twitter, right? And then just just add us as a, a friend or a follower, whatever it is, whatever they call, whatever they call it on on the Twitter. Uh, add us to just everyone's um, cell phone that, that has Twitter uh, <laughs> and give us those five star ratings from their phone too on SoundCloud Stitcher, iTunes, whatever podcast app uh, or, or way of accessing the podcast you have uh, and with that uh, we'll close out the episode before I get too silly here and see you guys next time bye everybody, have a good week bye